So I'd like to talk about um, one of the central maps the Buddha used to describe this natural process of awakening. It's uh, one of the impressive things about the Buddha. You know, there's coming to understand the nature of his own mind and how it is that suffering arises and how it is that suffering ceases. But something that's also quite impressive is his capacity to articulate that those natural processes of mind, like how it is as a natural process, our mind, how is it that it really feels like there's somebody here who's suffering at times? And how compelling. Isn't that compelling? <laughs> you know, when we're feeling really burdened, um, it really clearly feels like I'm really suffering. There's a me here that's really suffering. And in the same way, when we get a little momentum, continuity of present moment awareness and some wisdom and awareness with some momentum, it can also feel like I'm really doing well. (laughs) You know, I think I understand the Buddhist teachings. I think something's happening to me. I think I'm becoming wise and loving. And so the Buddha's task as a teacher was to somehow articulate, map out conceptually, how is it that these cycles of stress and suffering have this appearance of me suffering? And how is it that this awakening process can be just that, a natural process? so that we can understand samsara, these cycles, repeated cycles, doing the same thing, getting the same results, right? We see that a lot in our practice. I don't know if Carol Wilson was the first to use the simile, but it's, it's kind of been around, but this doing the same thing, getting the same results, the cycles of samsara, you know, self, self-centered activity, leading to stress, triggering more self-centered activity because we're feeling stress, leading to more stress. Uh, Carol described it as rearranging furniture in prison. (laughs) You know, and so we feel productive, like, oh yeah, it works better with the couch over here or whatever. (laughs) But the heart is still trapped. But we're endlessly wondering if just this adjustment or that adjustment. I mean, we, we do it with our bodily adjustments. We do it with all sorts of things. And it's not like wrong to go to the dining hall and get a cup of tea or to move our body in the middle of a sit. Or, but when we do those things, we want to observe, like what does it set in motion? Is it helpful? And we want to observe that not because we want to be a good yogi, but because of compassion. It matters. We want to hone in on what really works. So these maps that the Buddha offered, and there are a lot of these maps, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Faculties and the Five Hindrances and the Six Sense Gates and the Five Aggregates, and you know, there are so many. But they're really different articulations of the same process. How it is that the mind, because of the force of habit, stumbles into states of stress. And how it can be with the mind, with some momentum of wisdom and awareness, how the mind can be liberated from these patterns, these cycles of stressful Relating, like relating to this, this moment, these moments in ways that set emotion stress. And it's uh, useful, like on retreat, we'll catch these different attitudes we have about the mind until we really um, start to align with the Buddhist teachings and that the mind is just this 
natural process. And part of the natural unfolding of our mind, of our experience, is uh, related to how the mind is relating to its experience. What the mind is paying attention to and how the mind is paying attention matters. But we have all, uh, all kinds of other scenarios, ways we talk to ourselves about our mind, about our life, about our experience. Like uh, you've heard uh, somebody in one of the teachers mentioned Mara, it might have been Deb. And this is at times you could think of it as the personification of sort of trickster mind that always getting itself into trouble. You know, the tendencies for greed and hatred and delusion. So sometimes we think that about our mind, like, uh, I don't know if I can trust it. Uh, I think it might be out to get me. And, uh, and, you know, that it needs the kind of, and that affects our thought about the kind of interventions it might need. You know, I need some serious intervention because I can't trust my mind. And then uh, other times, you know, we, we might think about the story we, we repeat to ourselves about our mind might be something like uh, uh, some kind of passive victim, you know, not doing anybody any harm, and then all of a sudden life happens to it and pushes it this way and then pushes it that way, and it can lead to that very common, oh, poor me, like, uh, why is this happening to me? How come aging is happening to me? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem right. Or, or even, you know, like in a sit, you're like, why is my mind so distracted? That doesn't seem right. And it isn't that there's a particular story about the nature of our mind that's absolutely true. I think our situation requires something less about what's absolutely true and more about what's skillful, what story, what idea about the nature of our mind is useful, functionally, pragmatically useful. And this is what Uh, And you can check this out, and I'm sure you have been checking this out. This is why the Buddhist teachings are so compelling to some of us, because he talks about and basically is training us to notice, to understand the mind, the experience of the mind, just more generally our life as this natural and impersonal and lawful process. And not in a way that we're passive, but there's this very important part, this part of being aware, like how I'm relating to what's unfolding with awareness or without awareness, relating with kindness or relating with greed and aversion. All of this Matters. So in that sense, in that kind of more ordinary sense, it matters how we're relating to this unfolding natural process. The way we're relating is part of that natural unfolding. It matters. So this is a, a teaching the Buddha gave about the five faculties sometimes called the five controlling faculties. I used to consider this a kind of natural engine or mechanism of awakening. And it, it really, it's a map that is specifically useful to help us understand how does the mind that in moments is inspired by the Buddhist teachings, even on a cognitive level, just they make a lot of sense, or we have some experiential understanding, some of what the Buddha said really lines up with her own experience. So some verified confidence or faith. How does 
that faith, that confidence, you could call it conviction, how can that be onward leading to more insight, a deepening of wisdom? What is that natural process of being inspired and then the deepening, both the deepening of wisdom, but also the, the greater freedom that comes with the greater wisdom? How does the inspiration get translated to a deepening of insight? And so that the middle part of the five faculties then, from faith to the energy of persistence, to awareness, to the stability of awareness, and it's those three middle factors, that's what I often thought of as the natural mechanism for awakening. And then that deepens, you know, the stability when we have wise effort, awareness, and the stability of that present moment, awareness. Then the deepening of insight is really unstoppable. It will happen. That's what the proximate cause for deepening is, is that wise effort to persist, basically, at what's skillful. And right at the center of what's skillful is this capacity we have to recognize awareness, which is what strengthens the awareness. When it's strengthened enough, stable enough, continuous enough, it becomes what we call samadhi, which often gets translated as concentration, but probably better translated as stability of awareness or unification of the heart. And it's that coming together. And you might, some of you probably recognize this as a a third of the Eightfold Path. Like I said, these maps very much overlap and inform each other. And obviously, you know, qualities such as wise effort and mindfulness and samadhi, we find a lot of places like the seven factors of awakening and the Eightfold Path and many other places in the Buddhist teachings, of course because they're so central. And it's really nice for us to have this bit of information, the five faculties, faith, wise effort, awareness, the stability of that awareness, the deepening of insight or the deepening of wisdom, understanding. It's nice to have that because it it becomes a, support for reforming our habit of thinking about or seeing, imagining that what we're doing, for example, on retreat has a real pain in the butt for me. (laughs) You know, and it's like the whole journey, we hear a talk, like we've heard these last night, a few nights, you know, and it can just feel like, yeah, that, that would be impressive, but I'm too old, started too late, Uh, my mind's too restless, I got a lot going on in my life, my knees hurt, (laughs) I miss my cat. (laughs) You know, and there, there are a lot of legitimate things that need to be done in the world. And somebody's got to do them. And, uh, so, and it, we have, innumerable reasons to think, I can't do this. So it really helps to see it as a a natural phenomena, awakening, just like the repeated patterns of suffering, how we end up in stressful, heavy, dark, difficult states. That's very natural. There are reasons, lawful reasons, that the mind goes down that pathway, thinks this way, identifies in this way, perceives in this way, that naturally and lawfully leads to the felt sense of the body, heart and mind being heavy and tight. The squeeze on the heart, in the heart, sometimes people define dukkha as a squeeze in the heart, that contraction. 
And that really helps to see that in that impersonal way. Oh, of course, that happens. The fact that the heart feels tight, the body and mind is all tight, oh, of course. Because when it's like this, when that is like that, then this is like this. Can't be otherwise. But when that's not like that, when I'm relating the mind is paying attention in a different way, relating to the present moment in a different way, then something else gets set in motion. One of the ways, another one of those lists where the Buddha describes the awakening as a natural process. Sometimes the title of that talk, the translation is something like Transcendent Origination. Like some of you know the teachings on uh, codependent arising, like how it is that the cycles of stressfulness keep feeding themselves onward and onward. And the Buddha had to also map out a very natural process for awakening. And, and this one, this particular talk, it's faith. So the, there's suffering. And out of the experience of dukkha comes this seed of faith, like maybe dukkha, maybe the way I relate to dukkha, how I understand it, can set something other than more dukkha in motion. In another place in the discourses, the Buddha talks about, I think this is a very poignant uh, talk for me, where he he says something like, uh, when us human beings experience suffering, we either beat our breast and lament, complain and wail, and we act out the suffering in ways that may be understandable, but don't actually lead to the end of suffering. Or the other general possibility for us when we're meeting difficult experience is to be interested. Who is it that understands something about this very omnipresent experience for us humans we call suffering or stress? Who is it that knows something about what to do? how to relate, what is onward leading to the release of the stress, of the squeeze, of the tightness. Who knows something about this? So that search. Either we complain and blame and get upset, or we get interested. And that interest, of course, requires some humility. I think I mentioned that in my previous talk. So the Buddha said, there are these five strengths. What five? The strength of conviction or faith. The strength of wise effort or persistence. Strength of mindfulness, awareness. Strength of concentration, this stability of awareness or this unification of the heart and the strength of discernment or wisdom. These are the five strengths. Just as the river Ganges flows to the east, slopes to the east, inclines to the east, in the same way, when a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, they flow to unbinding, to awakening, slope to unbinding, incline to unbinding. And how is that? When a practitioner develops and pursues the five strengths, they flow, slope, and incline to unbinding. There is is the case where the practitioner develops the strength of conviction dependent on seclusion. And not just the seclusion like we have here at IMS in a relatively quiet place, secluded from a lot of our duties and responsibilities, secluded from you know, knowing what's going on with our families in the outside world. But also, partly because of that, of course, secluded from a lot of the torments of greed, hatred, and delusion, and all the, you know, different expressions. I think it was Gil Franzda who calls 
greed and aversion, the caffeine for the soul or caffeine for the ego, right? It's the often our animating force of our lives, greed and aversion. It's what we talk to our friends about, what we want, what we don't want. <laughs> right? Us people who are getting up there in age, you know, we talk about bodily ailments. That's what we talk about with our friends. <laughs> so the Buddha says, um, there is a case where the practitioner develops the strength of conviction. He's going to go through all five. So develops faith or confidence, develops wise effort, persistence, develops awareness, develops the stability of awareness, develops wisdom, dependent on seclusion, right? secluded from the torments of the mind. And we're secluded because wisdom and awareness notices when aversion comes up. Oh yeah, that's aversion. Instead of identify, getting swept away by greed and aversion. So dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, what Deb talked about last night, dependent on cessation, resulting in letting go. One develops strength of the other factors, uh, other faculties the same way. This is how a practitioner, when developing and pursuing the five strengths, flows, slopes, inclines to unbinding. Unbinding is just uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's uh, translation of awakening. And he's a well-known Western Buddhist uh, monk and scholar, teacher, Another place in the suttas where the Buddha, I think in a very effective way for me, uses three similes to help us understand how these faculties work together and how we can develop them. And and it really begins (coughs) with understanding the mind that falls into states of suffering and opens to states of less suffering and hopefully moments of joy, moments of ease, moments of calm, moments of clarity, moments of the absence, relative absence of greed and aversion and delusion in the mind as a natural process. And it's the three similes of the hen and the axe handle or the handle of a woodworking tool and these rotting sails. And I'll just read this because it really helps. And he mentions the five faculties here. Suppose a hen has eight, ten, or twelve eggs, and she doesn't cover them rightly, doesn't warm them rightly, doesn't incubate them rightly, then even though this wish may occur to the hen, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshell and hatch out safely, still it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshell and hatch safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, has not warmed them, has not incubated them rightly. In the same way, even though you or I may wish, right, without, but wish for awakening, but without devoting ourselves to development, oh, that my mind might be released from the causes for suffering, through lack of clinging, still our minds will not be released. Why is that? From the lack of developing. It should be said, lack of developing what? And then the Buddha goes on, he lists these different maps, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness and the Eightfold Path. And he also includes the five faculties. And these, when the faculties are developed, We call them the five strengths, or even some translations, the five powers when they're developed. So if we practice, I think maybe it was Deb who made this point several times, 
just follow the instructions. <laughs> you know, because it's basically the instructions or what the Buddha discerned from his own practice are the lawful causes for awakening. You know, that stability of present moment awareness that recognizes it's like this now. This experience is being known. And does that with some continuity, which naturally supports the discernment. When there's a continuity of present moment awareness, it's like that quality or that uh, capacity of wisdom, it's going to connect the dots. It's going to understand the lawful unfolding. Like when there is this clear seeing, then this is what unfolds from that. Greed is abandoned. Not you or me abandoning the greed, but seeing greed for what it is. It's a quality that's arisen because of causes and conditions. It's like this. It feels like this. It's not onward leading for my own well-being or the well-being of others. But it doesn't require us to get in there. It just requires that stability of present moment awareness. It's very interesting in the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Some of you know this, the Second Noble Truth, where the Buddha is mapping out the lawfulness of what happens when wisdom, wisdom and awareness, clearly sees the cause of suffering, like this attachment to desire, this identification with the desire, or identification with craving, wanting to get rid of the pain in my knee, wanting to hold on to this nice, calm feeling. And wisdom, and you probably, hopefully, recognize this moment many times during the retreat, where you saw the cause. You like there was the heart was burdened, things were tight, and you saw the attachment. The mind was identified in some way, trying to make something happen, make something go away, struggling, basically in conflict with the present moment. And there was enough stability of awareness, enough wisdom that understood this isn't helpful. This is the cause. When there's A, there's B. (laughs) Without A, there's not B. But A is here, so there's B. Like just seeing that lawfulness. And then you probably saw many times wanting to get rid of the cause, hating the cause. Why isn't the cause going away? I see you. (laughs) But here I go. You know, the mind is still tight. The body's tight. The squeeze is there. What's missing? Well, patience, faith, wise effort, that, that persistence of recognizing this is the cause for suffering, this attachment, this identification, this wanting the moment to be different is the cause for things being tight. And it's, it's like... Uh, I know it sounds strange to say this, but, you know, standing holding a hot pan until it registers, this pan's hot, and letting go happens. And it's the same thing. We're, we're watching, observing the mind struggling, knowing that the struggling, the greed, the aversion is a cause for stress. And we're observing that, you know, it takes practice, Right? in a balanced way, not judging it, not hating ourselves, not being in a hurry, but just in a sense, uh, resonating with that clarity, this is the cause for suffering. This isn't helpful. And it's a, it's a, you know, compassion and patience are closely linked. And even forgiveness. Like, oh yeah, this is how it is. Letting go happens when the clarity, seeing the cause, is the momentum of that is greater than the momentum of habit, which is, you know, to cling 
to, you know, to the conflict, to the struggle, to identify with, you know, get me out of here. I don't like this. Make this go away. Or I'm just going to get distracted because I don't want to feel this. You know, all the ways that we respond, we relate and react to the pain, to the difficulty in ways that reinforce the identification with the problem. Even though we know that the mind's identification, you know, when there's clarity, we see that that's the problem. But we can't personally get rid of that. And that really helps us understand how wise effort, this awareness, this stability of awareness, really creates that capacity to meet our life and all the diversity of the moments we experience, beautiful moments, terrible moments, ordinary moments that don't seem very special or worthy of awareness. But that's really the nature, like when, we, when those three qualities are well-developed, have some momentum, we'll notice we have the capacity to be present with really beautiful, wholesome states of mind. And we'll notice we have the capacity to be present with really challenging states of mind, experiences, and to be present, clearly aware of really ordinary states of mind. That's really the nature. Have you noticed that when you get a little momentum, a little continuity, that everything's naturally interesting in a way that when we don't have a continuity in our practice, we don't have momentum, it's like it's torture to walk back and forth, you know, or to go from the meditation hall to our bedroom with awareness. It's like seems so ridiculous, you know, that that would be asked. I remember when I was practicing in Burma, uh, I think it was Saida Ujanaka, one of my teachers, a well-known Burmese Saida monk, and uh, and he said once, you know, are you noticing when you blink? <laughs> and I mean, there were some times when I noticed, but probably not with any kind of consistency. Now, are you noticing when you're blinking now? <laughs> it's the power of suggestion. But it, it's actually possible when these three faculties are developed and get some momentum. The mind becomes quite wieldy. It's, it's like totally willing to do the work of Dharma practice. It's like uh, some of those dog breeds, you know, that are built to work. They just want to work. They just want to do stuff. You know, whether it's herd sheep or go hunting or whatever it is. I was just, I'm reading a book about uh, fungus and uh, I think it's called Entangled Life. It's, and uh, the, he opens the book by describing these dogs that are trained to find truffles. And just uh, the delight, you know, they, they take in and, and doing this work and the kind of relationship, the symbiotic relationship between the person and the dog. And uh, at least in some cases, I'm sure it's not always that way. But our mind is is like that. And one of the things I've learned in my practice, um, shocking and challenging in some ways, is uh, is this deep habit of not wanting to work. And uh, it's a sort of a subtle level of delusion that somehow equates like good practice or awakening with not having to work. Right, and we all have that to some degree. I mean, that's it's like if we interviewed a thousand people on the street and asked them, you know, what makes you happy, you know, it would be near the top of most people's list, not having to work. But it, I think it really um, is a is the result of not having a good sense, a good understanding of the nature of our mind, which actually prefers to work is happier when it's work and working. And when you see people who, you know, retire 
when they're still relatively young and healthy and have what we might consider to be a a healthy, happy retirement, they're really busy. (laughs) They're working in one fashion or another, even if it's chasing a ball on a court. You know, that's a kind of work. But they're doing something. And our mind, when the work is productive, what our mind doesn't want to do, and one of the reasons our mind can justify complacency and giving up, is when we ask the mind to do stuff, like even in our Dharma practice, but with an attitude or with instructions that aren't onward leading. So we're bringing, for example, an aggressive um, kind of efforting into our practice. And after a while, if it not working, we're going to lose heart. We're not going to want to make effort because our direct experiences, making working hard has only led to me getting tight. So I'm not going to work. Or we're somehow misunderstood the instruction. And we think awareness is something all about focusing on an object. And we get a headache. It's like, oh, why get a headache? You know, that can't be onward leading. And we're kind of right, it isn't onward leading. But it's not that the practice isn't onward leading, but that we misunderstand the practice. So this is, uh, you know, this is a living thing, these five faculties working together and how wisdom informs and inspires confidence. And confidence inspires wise effort to some degree, not perfect effort. And the effort allows for awareness to be remembered and recognized. The effort is really not about awareness so much as kind of clearing away some of the debris. And it's often described, wise effort is described as knowing how to um, prevent qualities of mind that aren't helpful from arising, but this prevention happens without repression. It really happens because the mind is wisely recognizing these qualities of mind aren't helpful. And those unhelpful qualities that have already arisen, we abandon them without aversion, without judgment. So when we see the mind, we see irritation in the mind, we recognize this is irritation We recognize it feels like this. We recognize wisdom discerns it's not helpful. And it's those three things, you know, the recognition of irritation, what it feels like, like what is the effect of having been identified with the irritation, taking it personally, the discernment of it not being helpful. It's those three things that allow for the disentangling with the irritation and the eventual passing away of the irritation. So we prevent unwholesome qualities, we abandon unwholesome qualities skillfully, wisely. See, there's always wisdom all the way through the path. And then we develop the wholesome, like a kind attitude, like wholesome interest like calm, you know, all the supporting qualities of mind, and we maintain them. And we develop them without greed, and we maintain the wholesome qualities without conceit or pride. Because conceit and pride isn't actually a cause for maintaining wholesome qualities. How many of us in this room have somehow stumbled upon stable present moment awareness, some calm, some clarity, some natural bliss of a mind that has some stability of awareness, and only to start taking it personally. This is great. And that, you know, the mind begins to proliferate on how happy I am that the mind has finally settled down. And... It isn't long before 
that stability of awareness has dissipated because of the conceit, because we weren't maintaining that samadhi, that stability of awareness. We were indulging in it or we were taking it personally and we were proliferating about the truth that it is a wholesome state. But instead of maintaining the causes for it, we were thinking about it. And thinking about samadhi isn't actually the cause for samadhi. It's the cause for stress, right? How many people know that? I mean, have know that experientially, that thinking about samadhi is a cause for stress. Because we really want to know that in our bones. And we really want to also know in our bones, like, what is the cause? One of the really helpful things that one of my teachers, Saito Tejaniya, says in different ways at different times, is that what wisdom sees is causes. Wisdom is interested in causes, like how samadhi comes to be, how stress comes to be. That's the activity of wisdom. That's what wisdom discerns, the lawfulness. So we have the wise effort that's preventing and abandoning and developing and maintaining. But even that wise effort, the reason I use the word wise in front of it is because that also has to be a joyful and natural process. Initially, you know, the image that's used in the suttas is a cowherder um, who has compassion about the qualities of their mind. And it's as if the cowherder has to bring a herd of cattle from one place to another that involves a narrow path where there are two fields of rice that are almost ready to be harvested and the farmers are watching. (laughs) And he has to keep all those cattle on that narrow path. And that cowherder is very, very busy tapping cows this way and that way to keep them on the narrow path. Because he'll get in trouble if they stomp on the ripe rice fields. So when that's, uh, when then that's how it is for us, then we're willing to be that active cowherder. Because we don't want the mind to take the off-ramp and to get identified with the irritation or get identified with the greed. Be so nice when this sit is over. How many of us have increased the experience of suffering because the mind got identified with the thought, it will be really nice when this sit is over? <laughs> right? It's a cause for suffering. Wanting the sit to be over when we have a lot of physical pain or a lot of mental pain is more mental pain. It's understandable on some level, but we want to get down in our bones that it doesn't help. And that's that simile of the hen, where the Buddha is saying that there are causes for awakening, but wanting to awaken, or just more simply, wanting some calm, isn't the cause for calm or awakening. It's the cause for taking things personally is the cause for the tightness that arises naturally, appropriately, when the mind is taking things personally. Because when things feel personal, then we're personally vulnerable to all the uncertainty of what's coming and going in our mind, externally around us, whether the mosquitoes are voracious or not. We're vulnerable to everything when we're taking the moment personally. The second simile is of the the handle of the woodworking tool, whether it's an axe or a a hammer or something that we use to work wood. And the Buddha says, just in understanding the natural process of awakening, the strengthening of these, especially these three 
middle factors, really understanding so we can connect the deepening of wisdom and the inspiration that comes from that. There's something to do with that inspiration. We know how to apply the mind in a way, it's like planting seeds, cultivating seeds that will lead to more of that deepening of wisdom that will inspire more faith, more of that energy of conviction that then we can skillfully channel wise effort, awareness, stabilizing awareness that inevitably slopes to more insight. So with the axe handle, the Buddha says that can you tell the difference between using that axe today, you know, you put in a good eight hours, a lot of it just holding, working that with that tool, can you notice how much the handle has worn down after one day? No. But after using it every day for 15 years, 25 years, until that handle is really worn out, will you know that it's worn out when it's worn out? Absolutely. It's completely obvious when that handle is completely worn down. And that's that's a second simile for understanding like, uh, you know, we want... We, we, we apply ourselves a little bit, you know, we hear the instructions, we apply ourselves a little bit, but then we want to check, like, anything happening? <laughs> so we stop applying, you know, we stop planting the seeds that we're told from the Buddha that really work and cultivating the seeds, basically, like Deb was saying, following the instructions, doing what we're told. And of course, we can do whatever we want, but when we're here, it makes sense to just follow the instructions, right? And then just to see, like as long as you set aside this time and came, let's see. And then it's so inspiring to me and I think the rest of the teachers when people come in, whether it's a small group or one-on-one interview, and it's just so powerful, the experience of just seeing cause and effect over and over again. People following the basic teachings of the Buddha and the deepening of wisdom, and the natural arising of faith, of confidence that there's something to do with this life. I can use this life, whether I'm a parent of children, or have a high-powered job, or older and retired, or younger and looking for a partner. So whatever's going on in our life, it's actually possible for the faith and the interest in awakening to get to the top of the priority list. Because any of those situations can be turned into practice. I mean, ideally, we have some time like we have this week, these nine days. But the idea, just like we do here, all 20 or 18 hours, whatever we have, when we're not asleep in bed. And it's the same idea when we leave. It's, you know, all the hours. We just do the best we can. And what really helps is understanding and we have to hear the information and then we turn the information, we begin to own it. So this like five faculties, which initially kind of can sound like Greek, like what? You know, faith, effort, awareness, stability of awareness. But when we think about that in terms of our practice, not obsessively, but we just bring it to mind and let it arise naturally, then all of a sudden you'll realize, whether it's this map or another set of teachings, you just it will be kind of a container for your faith and also for starting over. Like how to start over, how to reignite your confidence that there's something to do with the mind. Even as I'm raising my kids or driving to work or sitting and being aware of the breath coming in and aware of the breath coming out. There's a way to apply ourselves to this moment where we can be walking in the footsteps of the Buddha, planting more seeds, cultivating those seeds. There's a passage in the Dhammapada, some of you have heard this because it's quite, it's often repeated about drop by drop, the bucket gets full. And unfortunately, 
but because it's lawful, this works both directions. So if we're planting seeds of stress, of entanglement, of greed and aversion, then drop by drop the mind becomes more and more dominated, animated by the force of greed and aversion. It's not personal. It's not because you or I are bad. It is the natural lawful result of the seeds that we're planting. And some of us, you know, have circumstances where it feels really justified to be averse or to be greedy or to close down. But but, uh, identifying with greed and aversion has consequences, even if it seems to us to be the most natural or rational thing. And we, you don't have to take my word for it. We can observe in our own minds. It's really the heartbreaking truth. And the other side is drop by drop when we relate with non-greed, which is renunciation and letting go and contentedness and dispassion and kindness and generosity. When we relate with non-greed and non-aversion, kindness, patience, forgiveness, and we cultivate those seeds, that way of relating, then drop by drop, the mind becomes dominated. This is what we mean when we say that some good momentum, we have some good momentum in our practice, some continuity of wisdom and awareness. And we have experiences where it's as if the idea of me having to practice turns out to be somewhat of an obstacle. It's like getting out of the way is our practice or trusting the momentum in moments can be our practice. And like thinking I've got to connect with the object is in a, in a sense too gross, not needed. The wisdom and awareness is already connecting with the object. So part of the, the object that wisdom and awareness sees is the practitioner that wants to be a good practitioner is being known, right? That, that sense of personally doing the practice can also be recognized as just something coming and going. And we have to start having more and more momentum. And the deepening of wisdom, the deepening of understanding, seeing the changing nature of thought, of sensation, of sound, of all experience. Seeing the unnecessariness of any kind of grasping, any kind of holding. I think uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, this uh, Buddhist monk that I, I think I mentioned earlier, he sums it up as knowing without holding. And that's not something we do. It's something we recognize when there's good momentum. There's knowing without any grasping, without any holding. And that's the taste of freedom. We get a a, a deeper sense of where the path goes. So I'll just finish with... uh, I guess I should... Mentioned the third simile, <laughs> in case you're wondering. And then I'll, I'll read a passage from the Buddha. So there, remember the hen and the eggs hatch because the hen isn't wasting its time wanting the eggs to hatch, but understands, yeah, you've got to incubate them. You've got to sit, keep them warm. And even if the hen didn't want them to hatch, if they sat on them appropriately, the eggs are going to hatch. Because the lawful causes for hatching were supported, and that it's a gradual process, this awakening. And when the mind, like over years of practice, when the mind has, uh, is less caught in the cycles of greed and aversion in a substantial way, we'll know it. And some of people in this room know that in their practice. There's just much more space when greed or aversion gets triggered we know it's just less seductive in a significant way than it was when I started my practice. I can say that with real confidence. 
There's, I, the mind, this mind is less confused. Greed and aversion can get triggered, but there's less confusion, less stickiness with the greed and aversion that's gotten triggered. There's a substantial change from how it was. Not day by day, but over years of practice, 40 years now for me. And then the third simile is uh, of rotting sails. And it's, the Buddha describes uh, like a fishing boat pulled up into the dry dock during the wet season, the stormy season, but the riggings and the sails are just sitting there in the rain and the sun and the humidity and the wind. And gradually, through the natural process of wisdom and awareness, the sails, the riggings get rotted and fall apart, wear out, fall away. So the shedding, like shedding of the habit of being in conflict with experience, being tight, that habit wears out naturally. But it needs that, that presence, that coming together of wise effort and awareness and the stability. So I'll just end with this quote from the Buddha. The Blessed One said, Now how, Ananda, so Ananda is the Buddha's attendant, in this training of the awakened ones, is there the unexcelled development of the five spiritual faculties? So the Buddha will answer his own question. (laughs) There is the case where, when seeing a form with the eye, and he's going to go through this with all six sense gates. So the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching, and the awareness of mind objects, thinking, perception, things like that. But I'll just read it in terms of the eyes. There is the case where... When seeing a form with the eye, there arises what is agreeable, what is disagreeable, what is both agreeable and disagreeable, right? So this is just about feeling tone, right? So with our eye, some visual experiences will be pleasant or unpleasant or mixed. Sounds, same thing. Touches, thoughts could be pleasant, unpleasant, or a mixture of pleasant and unpleasant. So it seems kind of normal what the Buddha is saying, right? An experience arises, could be pleasant, could be unpleasant, could be mixed. One discerns, right, that the practitioner discerns that this agreeable experience has arisen in me or this disagreeable experience has arisen in me or this mixed experience has arisen in me. And that experience is conditioned, constructed, dependently co-arisen, Right? It's arising because of causes and conditions. And then here's the turning point. The Buddha says, but this is peaceful. This is exquisite. That is equanimity. With that, the arisen agreeable thing, disagreeable thing, agreeable and disagreeable thing ceases, and equity, equanimity takes its stance. Just as a person with good eyes, having closed them, might open them, or having opened them might close them. That is how quickly, how rapidly, how easily, no matter what it refers to, the arisen agreeable thing or disagreeable thing or mixed thing ceases and equanimity takes its stance. In the disciple of the awakened ones, this is called the unexcelled development of the faculties with regard to forms cognizable by the eyes. And this is true with any experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or mixed. When we've done our practice well, when we have some momentum, you'll see that as soon as an object is being known, whether it's a pleasant one, an unpleasant one, or a mixed one, you'll see that as soon as wisdom understands deeply, clearly, this is being known, you can discern that flavor of equanimity. What's really relevant in that moment isn't so much the object that's being known, is the absence of grasping, the absence of conflict, the peacefulness with the object. So the Buddha's not saying that you can't see that anymore. 
He's just saying what replaces the object is the purity of the heart that's knowing the object. The heart is absent of greed and aversion and delusion. Ah. And we can have moments of that. People have probably had moments of this. And it's useful to recognize it because that builds the wisdom into faith. Like, oh, this is the way to live this life. This is the way to be a partner, to be a parent, to be a good citizen, to do whatever we do in our lives. So let's leave it here. Take a moment, let go of the words. Thank you for your attention. So we have about 30 minutes for some walking practice. Come back for some chanting and sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.